So last week we studied in John chapter 6, uh, I'm sorry, in Exodus 16. That's kind of a, uh, you know, we, we often start a study in the Old Testament. And I tell you guys that, that Jesus is found on every page in the Old Testament. That, and I take you to a certain scripture that proves that. Does anybody know where that is? The road to Damascus. That's Paul and the horse that he wasn't on. But very close, the road to Emmaus, right? You're on the right track. On the road to Emmaus, um, Jesus met two guys. And and it says that the Lord kind of blinded them so they didn't know who he was. And I I share this scripture all the time on Wednesday. And maybe I need to do it again. Um, But we in that, at the end of that, it says that Jesus took them, beginning at Moses, and he showed them all the places in the Old Testament concerning himself. And so um, in, in... that we see that that we would love to have that Bible study, right? For Jesus to tell us and show us all the places beginning at Moses where we find and where we see Jesus. The other place um, I'm going to share with you today too, and it's specifically for the place in the scripture where we are right now in the Old Testament, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to get there in a minute. I want you guys to go there. But last week we looked at um, Exodus 16, and Exodus 16 is where God sends the manna from heaven. And, and Jesus mentions and, and alludes to this manna from heaven multiple times. One of the coolest things about, um, about the Old Testament is when Jesus himself gives testimony that it was true or that he was there or that, that it had meaning and specific meaning. And so whenever you see it, we know that it's good when, when Jesus, for example, Jesus talks about Jonah. And so we know the story of Jonah is authentic and it's legit and that Jonah was, was in a whale and God was with him and Jesus makes mention of Jonah in his teachings. And so in John chapter 6, interesting because in, it, it correlates with Exodus 16 and then in John chapter 7, we find a correlation to Exodus 17. But in John chapter 6, we've already been through the Exodus part, so I just want to highlight really quickly that, that Jesus himself is the bread of life, right? We know that. And so we get two of the I am statements of Jesus. How many um, I am statements of Jesus were there? Seven I am statements of Jesus, right? And these, these great I ams, I am, I am. And so in um, tonight, we'll see, we'll see a couple of them. So in, in Luke chapter 6, I'm sorry, in John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. I, lo- I love John chapter 6. I refer to it often because there's some, some powerful, um, all the way through the gospel of John. I could say that about anything in the gospel of John if I'm being honest. But in, in, in the gospel of John, there's some really powerful things. So Jesus, just to set it up quickly, Jesus had just fed the 5,000. And he, and he fed them um, with bread and, and, and filled their bellies. And they came back the next day and they're like, hey, hey, show us a miracle and we'll believe. He's like, yesterday I multiplied, you know, we fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and a few fish. We fed 5,000 people with a little boy's Lunchable. And today you come back and say, show me a sign and we'll believe. And again, it's, it's, it's reminiscent. It's a picture of the, the nation of Israel. And again, the 40 years that, that Israel spent leaving Egypt and wandering around the wilderness, so many times you just want to kick those people. So many times you're so frustrated because they're murmuring and they're complaining against God and against Moses. And you, and you really just want to jump on the, on the page and say, hey, don't just turn the page back one. Did you not forget what God just did or turn it forward and look what God's going to do? And how can you see, how can you stand there in the flesh and see God part the Red Sea, walk through on dry land, turn around and see the Egyptian army pursuing you, and then see God close the Red Sea and drown the Egyptian army? You, you live your life daily with a cloud, a fire at night, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and smoke during the day. So that you can that you can lead your way through the wilderness. When you get hungry, the, the the earth magically appears manna every day on the ground that you just go out and collect. And it's totally God because of the way it works. That if you go out and you get enough manna for tomorrow, in the morning when you get up it stinks. Because God said you can only collect enough for today. If you go out after the sun burns off the dew, then it's gone. And, and yet, throughout the 40 years... They, they're continuing to, to lack faith. They're continuing to doubt God and continuing to um, 
uh, murmur and complain. And it's frustrating reading their story. But often remind us that that's our story. That's your story and my story. And that's in there for a picture. And it is an exact Old Testament model and picture of Christian living today. And I imagine that God oftentimes will look at our lives and our situations and and he'll feel the same way that we do about the children of Israel as we get frustrated with their lack of faith, as we get frustrated with their lack of stepping out or believing that God is going to continue to show up. And you get this phrase through Exodus or this idea, has God brought you this far to kill you now? And that's, that's something that, that I'm often, Lydia's telling me all the time, you know, has God brought us this far to, to kill us now, you know? And I tell her, God brought me to Twila to kill me. And that's why I'm here, because he's done with me. And he, she's like, no, God hasn't brought you to Twila to kill you. He hasn't brought you this far to quit now. He who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so this manna, just biblically, manna is such a, a powerful topic biblically. Because we know that, that, that Jesus said that, that I am the bread of life. And, and that Jesus is, is that. So in, in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. They start complaining. Verse 22 of John chapter 6 says, On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat except that one which the disciples entered. And Jesus had not entered the boat and the disciples, but the disciples had gone alone. Jump down to 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus said to them, I most assuredly, I say to you, seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Super important, right? What may we do that we might do the work of God? And Jesus said in verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. And therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? And then they said, Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so now they're going back to Exodus 16, which we studied last week, and, and mentioning this manna from heaven. He just fed 5,000, and yet they want a sign in order to believe. And Jesus said, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said, so I guess he, they wanted manna to be there every morning, and it's for them to believe. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise up in the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me. Everyone who sees the Son and believes in Him may have everlasting life, and I will raise Him up in the day. I miss verse 33. It's important. It says in verse 33, For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I'm sorry, verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread of heaven from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And so Jesus reminds them that they said to Jesus, Moses gave us this bread. Now, will you do some awesome thing like Moses did? And then maybe we'll follow you. And he said, Moses didn't give you that bread. My father gave you the bread. And then he said, I am the bread. And so Jesus is in the manna in the wilderness and and the bread of life. It's a picture of Jesus And, and so many similarities to Jesus and the bread. You know, the bread came at night. Jesus was born at night. The bread um, is, is a picture in so many ways of Jesus himself and that it's all about Jesus and to partake in Jesus and be with Jesus and be in Jesus and that our success in this life is in Jesus and through Jesus and by Jesus and in our relationship with Jesus and that he is that bread of life. The thing I like about, turn the page, or actually, I don't know if you have your Bibles are laid out, but if you're in my Bible, you've got to turn the page. In verse 58, it says, This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught. And so, and then, um, 
Look at verse 61. And when Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? So it says there that, that people took off. They got mad. He wouldn't give them more bread. He wouldn't do like Moses did and make manna show up on the ground. And it says that many of the disciples left from following him that day, or many of the people that came in the group of 5,000. So, so merely doing a miracle and feeding people, it, it didn't work. It, didn't, it wasn't what they would do. You know, the dead guy that we studied last week in the hell story, when he's in Abraham's bosom, he says to Father Abraham, Father Abraham, if somebody would come from this place and go to my brothers, then, then they would believe. If they had this miracle of resurrection, then they would believe. And Jesus said, no, they won't. If they won't believe the law and the prophets, they won't believe one if one returning from the dead. And, and miracles are not a, a sign or a thing that, that really, and you think they would. But it's not what, what, what really motivates people to believe. It's a decision that you and I have to make of believing or not believing. You know, and believing in the Word of God and what Jesus says, and it's about Jesus. And then he asked in verse 61, he looked at his disciples, and after these people left, he looked at his own disciples and he said, does this offend you? I love that. You know, oftentimes I want to say to ourselves, I want to look in the mirror and say, am I offended? Does this offend me, what Jesus says, what he does? Um, does this offend you? And, and, and if so, Jesus was like, he like kicked the door open. He's like, does this offend you? The door's right there. You know, like that, that there is an offense and that, that Jesus can be and that this life is offensive. And, and the reality is there has to be a substance of our Christian faith that's, that's deeper than, than, than Jesus dancing and performing miracles. And that it's deeper than, than the church that you go to entertaining you. That it's, it's a depth of, of character that it's about Jesus. And Jesus wasn't going to dance for him. He wasn't going to perform for him. And because of it, they took off. And then he went to his disciples and, and, and asked them. All right. So um, with a finger in Exodus 17, we're going to set it up with 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And this is super important. And so just like on the road to a maze where Jesus went and told them all things concerning himself, we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have this this whole study that's called Old Testament Examples. And here the Apostle Paul, he's going to go back in the Old Testament and he's actually going to lay out for us some of the places that we don't have to look for ourselves anymore, that, that they're there, we know they're there, that Jesus talked about. Now Paul's going to show us and tell us what some of those are. In chapter 10, and verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. Talking about the, the people, the nation of Israel, right? Leaving Egypt. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. That rock was Christ. And we're going to see today where, where Moses is going to strike the rock and the water is going to come out. And, and, and here Paul tells us that that rock was Christ. That it was Jesus, it was Christ who was pictured in the manna. That it was Jesus who was pictured in the rock. That it was Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And that the nation of Israel, as they traveled, it was about a relationship with Jesus and through Jesus. And the same type of, of, of spiritual life and battles that we face on this side of the cross was no different for the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness. The difference just being that, that they were sometimes physical battles where we're fighting spiritual battles on this side of the cross. <clears throat> In verse 5, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. You know, they came to the edge of the promised land. They sent in spies, and the spies came back, two with a good report and ten with a bad report. And this was, you know, God was so patient with them. But it seems like God's patience, I don't know if it ran out or if he just finally realized they weren't going to change, period. And, and at that point, God said, okay, if you, you say you, you can't go and take the land... Now you won't take the land. And anybody who's 20 years and older will die in the wilderness before we enter. And the next generation went in. And that whole group of people wandered around the wilderness until they died, basically. And this mass funeral, waiting for all those people to die until they'd reached a point where then God would allow the next generation to go in. And now in verse 6, Now these became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after, after evil things, as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in 
one day 23,000 fell. Let us, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. And they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him think he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And so basically this is the example of what not to do. And who not to be. And how not to be. You guys, let's go to Exodus 17. And we'll see um, in, in 16, we saw John chapter 6. So next to chapter 16 of Exodus, you can make a note there, John chapter 6. You can put those two together, study those side by side. You'll see the manna, you'll see how it, it compares, and it, it's, it's like Jesus in so many ways. And then in 17, we get the famous story of the water from the rock and the victory over the Amalekites. So in ver- chapter 17, verse 1, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they were in the wilderness of sin. That's where God sent and began the manna. They left there on their, on their journey, and they ended up to a place, and they camped in Rephidim, but there was no water in Rephidim. Therefore the people con- contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And as it says in 2 Corinthians, do not tempt or test the Lord as some of them did. That's a reference to this where they came and they, they're, they're indignant, they're angry, and they're, they're testing the Lord. They're tempting the Lord in, in such a way that, that they're in rebellion against what, what they know God can do and will do. And, and, and they didn't go to God. They went to Moses. And so oftentimes, you know, we, we do. We go to our parallels or our laterals or somebody here, and we look at everybody in our life, our, our doctors, our psychologists, our pastors, our friends, our sisters, our moms, our dads, before we look up. And, and, it's, and it's always the wrong model. Always look up first and always seek God first. Always put something in your life, in prayer, in your, your kids, in prayer, and with, with your kids and their schooling or their, their behavior or their attitudes or whatever these things are. Put it to the God in prayer first. And these people first came to Moses. And they're, um, again, they got a bad attitude about it. And you could tell, you know, bad attitude's like a flat tire. You ain't going anywhere until you change it, right? And these people went nowhere. And in verse number two, it says, in verse number three, it says, And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. They were so angry, they were ready to kill him. And now Moses is the, the first leadership figure, the first pastorship fi- pastor figure in the Bible. And, and now the people are ready to kill him. They're ready to stone him. They're so upset by this whole thing. You remember last week they said, why, don't you, why did you take us out of Egypt where we, we ate of the flesh pots and we, we, we had you know, food to eat and we have no food? And, and they, were, they were remembering something that wasn't even true, that wasn't even there of their past and of their old life in Egypt. They were making stuff up like it was better than it really was. They were slaves in Egypt. And now it's dealing with food, and today it's going to deal with water. And they have no water. So Moses prays, and he goes to the Lord, and he, he lacks wisdom. And James tells us what? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives wisdom freely. And so Moses wisely doesn't contend with the people and argue with them or, or have too lengthy of a conversation with them. He goes to the Lord and, and, you know, he says, these people are ready to stone me. They're so upset. And the Lord said to Moses, go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your rod in which you struck the river and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. So that rock is, is what? It's what? Somebody said, Jesus. It's Jesus, right? Because we just read it in 1 Corinthians verbatim, the rock is Jesus. And we know the, the typology of Jesus being our rock. And a rock is solid. And a rock is, is immovable. And it, it's 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 
trustworthy and it's you know a rock is jesus in uses the example of a rock multiple times in the bible um, as himself the first one being remember he said if you build your house build your house on the what on the rock and then he gave an example of two men one built his house on the sand and the other built it on the rock and when the winds and the rain come not if the winds and the rains come when the wind and the rain come the man who built his house on the rock his house stood and the rock is jesus and that's a picture of, of Jesus being the foundation of our lives, of our Christian living. And you build your life, you build your, your, your faith, you build it upon the rock, which is Jesus. And then later, so talking personally, that each one of us build our lives upon the rock, which is Jesus. And then in, the most, in, in Peter's crowning moment um, there, where Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, Who do men say that I am? And they gave him some answers and he said, But who do you say that I am? And Jesus and Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus said to Peter, he said, Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. And, and the rock that, that was not the actual rock they were standing on. They were in a place where it was the, the headwaters of the Jordan River, where all the pagan temples were. The rock that he was talking about he was going to build his church on is who? Is it Peter? Is it the actual rock they were standing on? The rock is, is Jesus, and he's going to build his church upon this rock and this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he's Messiah, and, and that it's about Jesus. And, and Peter's confession of Jesus and Jesus being the rock is what he's going to build his church on. And then he goes on and he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, right? So have the gates of hell prevailed against Jesus' church at any time since since. He gave that saying to Peter in AD 32. Absolutely not. And, and so, so now we have Jesus using a rock as something for us personally to build our lives on. Jesus being the rock that he's going to build the church on. And so we have Jesus as our rock both for our house, our personal lives, our house, and the church. And Jesus is the rock that supports them both. And so Moses, in verse 7, called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is this, is the Lord not, is the Lord among us or not? So Massa and Meribah means temptation and contended or chided because they chided the Lord and, and, and Moses called them. Turn with me now to John chapter 7. And I want to point out just something in John chapter 7. And it says... What? You guys hear that baby crying? Someone's back there pinching her. So, in verse 37 of John chapter 7, there, there's three major feasts that, that they celebrate in Israel. And one of them is a feast of tabernacles or booths where they will set up booths and, and it commemorates the, the time that the, that the fathers spent or the forefathers spent wandering around the wilderness in Israel. And one of the things that they do at the Feast of Tabernacles to this day is they, they would go, actually not to this day because for so long it was, it was not there. They weren't in Israel or in Jerusalem. But one of the places that we go in, in Jerusalem, as you come out of Hezekiah's tunnel, you come to these steps that overlook what is the Pool of Shalom. And at the Pool of Siloam, and it's recently been discovered there, in the Pool of Siloam, um, the, the priests would come and they would fill a water pot full of water in the, during the Feast of Tabernacles. And on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, the priest comes to the Pool of Shalom and, and he dips it in the, near the water, but he doesn't actually put any water in it. He kind of goes down and he comes out with an empty vessel. And he comes back to the, they, they march it back up. It's kind of a, a trek um, from, from where the Pool of Siloam is back up to where the temple is. Um, the Teropian um, Road or Valley, I think is what it's called, as it goes through there back up to the temple. And he, on the last day, they pour out an empty pitcher of water. And it's on that day, and it's in that setting, and it's a very bold um, place that Jesus is. And you have this rabbi, this this this, this thirty. 32, 33-year-old rabbi who's there that day named Jesus. And, and as the, they've done something that they've done through all, all their history and all their tradition in one of the major feasts, and they, and they pour out this 
this symbolic water pitcher that's empty on the last day of the feast. That brings us to John chapter 7, verse 37. It says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So they pour out this empty pitcher of water. And Jesus says, and stands there in front of everybody and says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Does that say out of his heart will flow trickles of living water? Sprinkles of living water? The actual Greek word there is torrents. Out of your life, out of your heart will flow torrents of living water. He who lives and believes in me, out of his life will flow torrents of living water. And, and you know what the reality is? I know we don't, probably don't always feel that our lives flow with torrents of living water. But I want to tell you that that's the, that's the potential we have in Christ. That's God's will for your life, is that your life would flow with torrents of living water. And when Jesus said that, he spoke the truth. And he spoke in sincerity what his will and what his goal is for your life. And another famous thing that Jesus said that I quote all the time, Jesus said that I've come that you might have life and that more abundantly. And that's, that's God's plan. That's God's heart is that we have an abundant life that flows with milk and honey, that flows with torrents of living water. And Jesus stood there on that day and he says, out of your heart will flow living waters. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom the, of those, excuse me, the spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so he spoke of this promise of the coming Holy Spirit there to the day as, as he promised that they would flow from the rock, would flow these torrents of living waters. We can go back to John chapter, or sorry, Exodus 17. You guys know this story. This, this becomes um, Moses' nemesis here where he, he, he strikes the rock and water comes out. Now, 40 years later, in Numbers chapter 20, we get the rest of the story. And in a different place, they're there, and, and, and Moses comes, and they have no water to drink. And Moses comes to God, and he says, God, we, we have no water to drink. What do you want us to do? And, and God says to Moses very specifically, I want you to go and speak to the rock. And just like when you hit the rock, way back in Exodus 17, water will come out and feed the people. And Moses got angry. And he turned around and he came back out to the people and he said, must I smite this rock a second time? And he hit the rock and water came out and, and, and he, he was demonstrating, he was representing God to the people that God was angry with the people. And God pulled Moses off to the side and he said, Moses, uh, yo, hey, you misrepresented me today. I'm not angry at the people. And, and for that reason, you won't enter the promised land. And there was a, there was a punishment on, on, on Moses. And your heart breaks at this point in the story. <laughs> Mine does. I'm like, poor Moses, man. Put up with these people for 40 years and, and, and all this stuff. And he makes a mistake. And, and now he's not allowed to enter the promised land as a result. But God's fair and God's just in all of his ways. And all of his decisions are righteous and true. Moses did get to go into the promised land. We see him there transfigured with Jesus uh, and Elijah in the New Testament. But the reason why the punishment was that way for Moses was because Moses broke the symbolism. And the rock again, the rock is what? It's Jesus at the very best, right? At the very least, it's a picture of Jesus, right? The rock is a picture of Jesus. And the rock was smitten. Jesus was smitten. He was crucified. And now after Jesus was crucified and the rock was smitten, what happens now for you and I as believers? We speak to the rock. It says that, that even like the manna, how it says, even in your mouth, you, you have it. Salvation is with you. The Bible says salvation with you. It's even in your mouth. What does that mean? Salvation is in your mouth. The Bible says, trust and believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. With the heart, one believes and with the mouth, one confesses unto salvation. And so, and so now we, we don't, Jesus doesn't need to be smitten anymore. He's only smitten once. Jesus doesn't need to be re-crucified so that you can get saved or so that your sin or your next sin can be forgiven. 
Jesus was, was, was crucified. He was smitten. And now by faith, we speak to Jesus. We talk to Jesus. And, and, and water comes forth. And, and the Holy Spirit comes forth in our lives as we talk and, and speak to Jesus. And that was the Old Testament picture that God had laid out. God knew it from the beginning. He knew when Moses smote the rock the first time, there was going to come a time later where, where the people were going to argue again and Moses was going to speak to the rock. And the rock was Jesus and it was a picture. And Moses broke this picture and he smote Jesus twice. You know, there's some churches you go and, and, and they, they do have this weird doctrine of, of, of Jesus having to be um, re-crucified and re-smitten every time, you know. And, and then when they take communion, it's it, his body and blood it's actually, it, it, it becomes the actual body and blood of Jesus in your body. And these kind of weird ideas of Jesus being um, repunished and re-crucified all the time for our sins. And that's just not the case. That Jesus paid the price for your sins. And the price was terrible. And the price was the full weight of our sins that, that were placed upon Jesus. Um, but Moses is going to break that. And so now we go on to verse number 8. And it says, the story, the, the scene shifts here from the water coming out of the rock. And it says, now Amalek came and fought with the Israel in Rephidim. You know, I think of here, I think of Israel, this, this nation. They're not even a nation. They're, they're a bunch of slaves who had just crossed the Red Sea and went into the Valley of Sin. And, and, and God gave them manna and they left there and they went on to the next place. And they're moving to southern Canaan now. And, and you have the Amalekites who come and attack them. And it reminds me, 1948, Israel's brand new in the nation. They, they, they haven't even been a country for five years and, and not even for, for five months. And they're attacked on all sides by, by Arab nations. And you wonder, how do they even have at that point the weapons to defend themselves? And you read in this story that Joshua has a sword. So they had weapons where they brought them with them from Egypt. The Egyptians had weapons, whether they were able to keep weapons as slaves when they were there. Who knows? I don't know how it went. But they had weapons and they had swords um, by the edge of Joshua's sword. You know, it's interesting that the... Well, rabbit trail, we'll save it. On steel weapons in, in history in the Bible, but we'll save it. So... Um, so the Amalekites come and, and ruthlessly, just like the, the Arabs have recently attacked Israel. And Moses said to Joshua, choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek tomorrow. And I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And so, so Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Hur, that was, this is Ben-Hur from that movie we watched recently. No, I'm just kidding. This is her. This is a different one, way, way before the time of Jesus. There's no her, coincidentally, in the Bible in the New Testament. We have a couple in the Old Testament. We have one here, and then we have another her um, who you can, you'll, that name is used in the Bible. It's actually Ben-Hur in, in Kings at the time of Solomon. He was there in, in, in the life of Solomon somewhere, but no Ben-Hur in the New Testament. So... Um, in verse 11, And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And Moses' hands became heavy. So they took a stone and put, put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And so you have this, this kind of funny story, uh, cool story, that Joshua's told to, to get the people and find these guys. And again, these guys aren't soldiers or fighters. And they, 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 it wasn't because of their physical prowess, because of their training in, in military and things combat. And, and Joshua was told to go, and nor Joshua would have been somebody who... And by the way, this is the first time that Joshua is mentioned in the Bible. And, and, and Moses tells Joshua, find some men and go down and, um, and fight the Amalekites. So they're going down and they're fighting the Amalekites. And Moses has his staff probably in both hands horizontally across his head, and he's holding it up over his head. And as long as his hands are up and he's, he has this thing up, then, then the, the, the Israelites are winning the fight. And then his arms get tired and he puts them down, and then the, the fight starts swaying the other direction. And so they realize it. So the first thing they do is they get him something to sit on because he must have been standing and getting tired. So they, they let him sit down. 
And then he put his hands up and they got tired. And so Aaron on one side and her on the other side, they actually held his arms up until the going down of the sun. And Israel prevailed in the the battle. And, and, you know, raising your hands to the Lord. There's something that's a spiritual victory. And this battle, was it won down on the battlefield? It really honestly had nothing to do with what was going on in the battlefield. You got a bunch of slaves with who knows what kind of weapons fighting. And, and it didn't matter what, what was happening. The only thing that mattered when Moses' hands were up, they were winning. When Moses' hands were down, they were losing. So it had nothing to do with what was going on in the battlefield. The battle was won up on the hill. The battle was won spiritually up on the mountain as Moses interceded and prayed and, and stood in the gap for the fighters that were fighting down there. And so um, biblically... You know, I always encourage us to raise our hands to the Lord in worship, in prayer. And, you know, I don't ever want to make somebody uncomfortable in that. There's even times where, you know, here in church, I'll I'll ask the whole congregation, you know, let's raise our hands to the Lord. And for some people, that's such a foreign idea to raise your hands to the Lord or it's embarrassing or whatever. um, and, And I guess the case that I always make is I just want you to understand that it's biblical. It's not something that that we do as um, you know, emotional Christians, or we do for show, or we do, we do it because it's biblical. We do it because the Bible demonstrates and illustrates it multiple times all the way through the scriptures. Apostle Paul tells us in first Timothy, I desire that men raise holy hands in prayer. And Paul said, he desires that you raise your hands when you pray. How many of us are obedient to that? And we can, we could read these things in the Bible and, and they're very simple and they're very clear, but yet we, we, we have this attitude, they don't apply to us for some reason because it's not culturally what we do or what it is. But again, the case that I make is just that raising your hands to the Lord is biblical. It's not fanatical. It's not something that the, the contemporary Christian church made up or the Pentecostals, you know, perverted or did or something. I mean, it's, it's something that, that's biblical and there's a value in it. Now, the value is, is, is again, it's, it comes from your heart. The value is not the position of your hands because your heart can be um, as, as involved in worship and as submitted to God and crying out to God whether your hands are up or down, whether you're sitting or standing. God does not care. You know, you know this idea of folding your hands, closing your eyes and bowing your head? That's the one type of prayer that you never find anywhere in Scripture. I think that was something that Sunday school invented so the kids would stop hitting each other and punching each other. And it just, we adopted it. It's true. Clo- bow, clo- you know, fold your hand, close your eyes and bow your head. Jesus never prayed that way. Jesus, it says Jesus raised his hands and lifted his eyes. It says that Jesus walked. It says that Jesus knelt. And it gives us four or five different ways of body posture that Jesus used when he prayed. And never did he, did he fold his hands or close his eyes or bow his head, you know. And, and so oftentimes Jesus lifted his head and his eyes when he prayed. And so, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll catch me and I'll just, you know, I, I kind of close my eyes sometimes or I'll even fold my hands at different prayer different times because I think, you know, people don't understand and I don't want to seem disrespectful or irreverent by standing there with my eyes open when we're praying. But the reality is, you know, if we're doing what Jesus did, Jesus lifted his eyes. He left it. He, he, he opened his eyes. He lifted his hands. And so here we have Moses who, who lifts his hands. You can go through the Psalms. We did this, this a couple weeks ago, so I won't bore you with it again today. But I showed you in Timothy where it says to raise your hand. I showed you pl- several places in the Psalms. You can find them all the way through the history writings of the Old Testament, in the poetry, in the prophets, with Jesus, and with, and with the disciples. I mean, you got the, you got the what's, what's the five called when you're at the horse track? The quin. Nobody knows, huh? <laughs> when you bet on five races in a row? That one, you got that. You got all five, okay? You got all five present. You're one first place horse in all five races. And so the, the idea of raising hands, again, it's, it's something that's spiritual. It's biblical. This battle was, a, was, a, was a, a spiritual battle that was fighting. One of the things I say about raising my hands, you know, for me personally, um, I, I don't want to offer to the Lord anything that, that costs me nothing. I don't want to offer something to the Lord that costs me nothing. Why? Because that's what King David taught us. King David said, I don't want to give something to the Lord that costs me nothing. It's meaningless. 
If you only give to the Lord what you can afford and what's in your abundance and what is not a, a step of faith or an act of faith, it's nothing. The guy came to David and he wanted to buy the threshing floor, Ornan. And the guy said, you can have it, king. It's yours. Just take it and use it and give it to the Lord. And David said, I'm not going to take it for free because I'm not going to offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. There has to be a, co- a price, a, a sacrifice, a, a step of faith in these things that I offer to the Lord. And for me, I oftentimes kind of translate that to even as I raise my hands to the Lord. You know, when you raise your hands to the Lord, it hurts, right? It hurts your shoulders. It hurts your arms. And you hold it up there long enough and it starts to get a little painful. And, you know, to me, that's what the cost is. It costs me something to, to hold that hand up there. And it's starting to hurt a little bit. And I'm like, you know, and, and you got to be careful, right? We don't want to get weird about those things or get legalistic about if I can hold till the end of the song, God's going to bless me and I'm going to endure this pain. And if I can hang out until the, the guy plays the last bar and Brian sings the last lyric, then I, I made it and God's going to be happy with me. It doesn't work that way. But at the same time, just a pet peeve and I'm getting way off now, but there was a person I used to know in Bible college and this person would, would always do this when they raised their hands to the Lord. Like this. It used to bother me so bad. I'm like, that don't cost you nothing. What are you doing? They're like, and I think we had some in, the, in our Bible college classes in this particular room where we do devotions. We had armchairs or something. And they were always like this. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, you're way, <laughs> I don't know why, but it just bugged me. And so I'm like, it don't cost you nothing. But um, don't, don't miss the, the point. I think this is totally fine, okay? There's nothing that's, that's less spiritual about this than this. Um, but again, I, I just want to encourage you guys that, that, that raising your hands to the Lord, it's biblical. It's, it's God-ordained. There's something about it that's freeing. You're saying, God, pick me up. You know, one of the coolest things is as a baby comes to you and they get close to you and they put their hands up like, pick me up. You know, and that's kind of the idea is pick me up, Father. And, and sometimes it can be surrender. Can it be, um, can it be misused? Absolutely. And that's probably the reason why some people, I don't want, you know, and I, I don't want it to be fake either. And sometimes if I raise my hands during a worship song, it can distract me from the heart of worship. And I'm trying to keep my heart and I'm trying to keep everything um, around me where I'm just focused on worship and focused on the Lord. Whether, you know, whether I like the song or not, whether the, 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 there's noises around me or some woman four rows back is, thinks she's an opera singer and she wants everyone to hear. And I'm trying to zone her out and trying to... Um, just worship the Lord. And so sometimes, you know, sometimes it's better for me just to sit like this and I can kind of focus better. Sometimes I can raise my hands and do it if it's a distraction. But again, not the posture of my body. I'm always trying to work on my heart. And sometimes this is the best way to do it. Sometimes I like to get down. I like to kneel in front of my chair. And I don't too often because, again, I don't want to distract anybody else as they're worshiping. And But, but that for me is a better way to engage in that song or engage in that moment of, of, of worshiping the Lord. So this is a spiritual battle. Sometimes I think, again, I think another point we could pull out of this that's important, it's valid, is that sometimes, you know, we, we, we spiritually fight for other people and the battle's won on the hill. And, and so don't forget that point that the battle's won on the hill in your life, okay? So your battle may be at work with your boss, but that's where the battle is, but that's not, that's where the battle is fought, but the battle is won where? Come on, y'all. Somebody on the hill. Where's the battle won? On the hill. Come on, preach it. Preach it. I'm going to start preaching it. On the what? On the hill. The battle's won on the hill. So seriously, the battle in your life, it's won on the hill. It's won in the prayer meeting on the hill. You know, I'll give you a quick example. and It's, it's kind of cheesy, but it, it's true, and it works. Um, I was a junior high Bible teacher. It was one of the assignments, and I had millions of assignments working at Joshua Springs. All of us staff members wore many hats. And one of the hats that I wore is I was a junior high Bible teacher. And so I had class for one hour, five days a week. I taught fourth period junior high Bible. And so um, the kids didn't so much like to be there all the time. It wasn't a subject that was um, that carried a lot of weight in their GPA, and it was graded a little differently. And so um, classroom management was hard. I was, uh, I don't know at what point, I was definitely out of Bible college. I was on staff, but, you know, I was younger and not not really an experience in a classroom setting teaching junior high kids. And so struggled with classroom management and struggled with, keeping the kids interested and doing a good job in my class and you know 
and so just had a hard time with this class, a really hard time. Discipline was difficult. The behavior was bad. It was like pulling teeth. I hated going to class every day. And so I started going an hour early to that class, and I would sit in the front seat, and I, and I started praying for all the kids by name. And I just prayed. And so my class, whenever my class started at 12, I'd get there at 11, 11, 15, whenever I could. And I would sit and I would pray for every kid in that class. And, and within a month, the entire structure of that class changed. And I did nothing but show up an hour early and pray for them every day. And the entire structure changed. Classroom management changed. The discipline changed. The, the, the attitude of the kids changed. We started having fun. They started learning the Bible. Things changed. My curriculum didn't change. My style didn't change. But I started covering what I was doing in prayer. And, and the prayer and the battle was won on the hill. And that that changed. And so, you know, where, where is your battle in your life right now? And are we focused on, you know, maybe your boss at work or maybe the your children or things at school or wherever that battle is, that battle's one on the hill. Amen? And in verse 13, it says, So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And so, you know, the Amalekites, these are the Amalekite people, and I think this is, um, the Amalekites are going to come up over and over again. And so just through your Old Testament history, you should be familiar with this term or with this group, the Amalekites. So Haman, who, um, who, who made the gallows that was the first, one of the first that was going to complete um, genocide upon the Jew- Jewish people and one of Satan's henchmen, the first Hitler that we have in the Bible, um, he was an Amalekite. The Amalekites, it's, it tells us in um, Deuteronomy 25.17, you should write that down there, Deuteronomy 25.17, it says that the Amalekites would come from the rear when they attacked and they would pick off all those who were weak and, and feeble as they would attack because they were, they, were, they were scoundrels and they were dirty and they would come from behind and attack the weak and the vulnerable. And that's, that's that verse there, Deuteronomy 25:17, is a picture for Christian living today because that's where the enemy is going to attack and that's where Satan attacks. And if, you, you know, if you're struggling in your walk with Christ and you're always walking the edge and you're kind of always a little behind the crowd, well, just understand that the enemy comes from the, behind to attack you. So get up to the front, get strong, get, get, get real in your walk with Christ and your devotion of prayer and reading the Word and, and spending some time with the Lord because Amalekites are a type of the flesh. They're a biblical type of the flesh. Anybody struggle with the flesh? We all do, right? And that's what the Bible says, that the flesh is, we war against the flesh continually. That is Christian living, is the spirit versus the flesh in a nutshell. And that's how every one of us live our lives every day is this battle between what the flesh wants to do and what the spirit wants to do. So biblically, Amalekites are a picture or a type, just like Jesus is a type of, the rock is a type of Jesus Represents Jesus. The Amalekites represent throughout the Old Testament your flesh, and then, and and so whenever you see that, and then we have them all the way through. Do you remember um, Saul? King Saul was told to go, and, and he was told to wipe out a certain group of people. And and really, what was a difficult command sometimes for us to understand? Because God told Saul, "I want you to kill every man, every woman, every child, every dog, every goldfish, every sheep. If it lives." And it's an Amalekite, annihilate it, destroy it. And you remember the story, Saul went into the battle with the Amalekites and he didn't, he didn't kill them all. And then Samuel, the prophet, shows up and he says, Saul, how are things going? And he says, oh, praise the Lord, brother. That's exactly what Saul said. I did exactly what God said. Amen, Jesus. He did this little Christian dance and um, Samuel said, then why is it that I hear the sheep bleeding in my ear? And he said, oh, well, I saved a couple of those so that I could offer them to the Lord. And then you guys know the story. King Agag was spared and he was the Amalekite um, king. And it says that Samuel hacked him up. <laughs> Samuel took a sword and he hacked him up is what the Bible says. Um, and he hacked up that, that Amalekite king. Well, later in Israel's history, obviously Saul was lying. I heard weird stories. And I, to be honest, I... I, I, I can't buy this one, but even this is, I think, what Chuck Smith used to say or teach or some of them, that King Ahab, King Agag, before Samuel hacked him up, he must have fathered a son or something because you see Amalekites later in the story, but it doesn't fit. The timing doesn't fit. And 
that son would have been busy having sons to repopulate all that. I, I think what happened personally is that I could be dead wrong, is that Saul um, was lying. And obviously he was lying, but there was more than just King Agag that was left alive because you find the more Amalekites in Israel's history. And, and, and in ironic turn of events, there was when Saul died. Do you remember the story? Saul fell, or Saul went to fall. First, he told his armor bearer to kill him, and his armor bearer wouldn't do it. So Saul fell on his own sword, and then his armor bearer fell on his sword. And then this kid came up, and he found the body of Saul there, laying on his own sword. And and it's and whether he Saul was dead and the kid was lying, or whether the kid killed him, we don't know. But the kid went back, and he he went to King David, and he told King David, he said, "I found the body of Saul, and I killed him," thinking he would get a reward. And David said, who are you? And he said, I'm a Malachite. And so it was an Amalekite who killed Saul or was there. And then David killed that kid thinking he would get a reward. But he said, you, you stretched out your hand against the Lord's anointed and he killed him. So it, just remember the Amalekites. They come up all the way through Old Testament history. They're a picture or a type of the flesh. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 14, write for a memorial in the book and recount in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of, of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will war with Amalek from generation to generation. I think we can do the next one fast. Let's do 18. We'll do it fast. You guys ready? All right, here we go. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel and his people. And the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her, with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom. For he said, I have seen a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eleazar. For he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of the Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped in the mountain of God. So I think this is kind of interesting part of the story for me anyways. A little side note, it wasn't in any of the stuff that I read. But, you know, Mo- Moses had a wife and two daughters, or two kids, right? We know that. And Moses was 40 years old when he killed the Egyptian and he left and he was in the wilderness and, and he left and he fled his life in Egypt as, as, a, as a prince and as, as a rich, wealthy, young kid who, you know, not young, I guess at 40 anymore. And then while he was in the desert, he got a job working for a guy named Midian and or, um, what's his father? Jethro in Midian. And he married Jethro's daughter and he had kids and he spent 40 years very humble as a shepherd, um, shepherding Jethro's flock and then he gets married there he has kids there and then at 80 years old he he runs into the burning bush and that's where God tells him to go and let my people go well he leaves his wife and his two kids and his family for this this ministry this call that God has this missions trip that he was going on and I don't know how long would have transpired between the burning bush and today but he would have been away from his family and his wife and his kids so depending on what uh what Moses's wife was like, this was either a really good day or <laughs> he was like the CHP officer who, uh, the, you guys, the, the, this, this guy's wife left him for a CHP officer. CHP is California Highway Patrol, I guess UHP here. And the, um, so the guy gets pulled over or he gets, he looks in his rearview mirror and he sees lights in behind him and it's a CHP officer and so he hits the gas and he's running for like miles and miles and miles and miles and finally runs out of gas and the CHP officer pulls him over. He says, why did you run? He said, my wife ran away with the CHP officer like five years ago and I thought you were bringing her back. <laughs> so who knows what Moses' thought was about this today. But he would, have been, he would have been reunited with his family here, so I'm sure it's a good thing. The Bible doesn't tell us otherwise. And it was Moses anyways, a father of faith. I mean, it was Moses anyway. So verse number six, and now he said to Moses, did we do five? And now he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being. And they went into the tent. 
And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians of Israel's sake and the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So Moses and Jethro had a good relationship, no doubt. We can see that in the text. We can see that, that, that they respected each other. And obviously, it would have been a huge loss for Jethro when Moses left and when God called Moses into the ministry because Moses would have been in charge of all of Jethro's affairs and his flocks and, and would have done a good job. He was the most humble man that ever lived. And I think he probably just worked hard and kept his nose to the grind and was a good father and a good, good uh, husband to Jethro. And so when, when he came back that day after the burning bush, no doubt, and told his wife and his kids and his father-in-law, God's called me and I have to leave. We were probably bummed out. And now they're reunited. Good relationship. In verse 9 it says, Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. So it's pretty cool because Jethro, it says it doesn't give us a lot about him, but you, you, you sense or you see in, this, in the text that Jethro had and knew and had a relationship with God. He gives godly wisdom. Everything he, he says and does is seems to be very good. He, he's, he's called, when Moses meets him in the beginning, he's called the priest of Midian. Not sure exactly what that means or where, what priest of what, but um, doesn't tell us outright. But you, you get the impression that he knew the Lord and that he was very wise and, and, and just a good guy, Jethro was. And in verse 10, And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord. And so he, anyways, the point being that he, he was ministered to the fact that God, that Moses said, hey, I got to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And Jethro says, how'd it go, man? He says, God did it. And he tells him all the things that God did. And Jethro blessed the Lord. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I, the Lord, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. And so the testimony of Moses' God speaks into the heart of his father-in-law. And he says, as a witness, I know now the Lord is greater than all the other little g-gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. And then Jethro's Moses' father-in-law took a burnt offering and offered sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. Underline that. From morning until evening. Can you imagine the job of, of Moses as the judge? And he sat there from morning till evening. And people would bring all of their, their problems and their affairs and he would judge them. And can you imagine what it was like? She hit me. They stole my sheep. That's my sheep. They, he snores at night. And then our tents are right next to each other. And we can't sleep all night because he's snoring all night. Like what, what it would have been these petty things all day long that, that Moses would have sat there and judged. And so when Moses, verse 14, father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And I think Moses at this point probably thought, yeah, I'm impressing my father-in-law. I'm the judge here, you know, and people come and, and, and they, they had to wait in line. If it was from morning until evening, there would have been a long line to get in to see Moses. And they would have had to stand in this line at some point during the day to see Moses. And in verse 15, and Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. And when, when they have difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one and another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you do is not good. And I, don't, I think maybe that was a little shock to Moses that it was not good. And Jethro said, the thing that you do is not good. Both you and the people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. Like you can't keep this pace up. The people are going to get wore out. You're going to get wore out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen now to my voice or listen to my voice as if the voice of God. And I will give you the counsel and God will be with you and stand before God for the people so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And so here Jethro is going to give him good godly counsel and he's going to receive it. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws and show them the ways in which they must walk and, and they work they must do. Moreover, you shall select all the people, able men, somebody underline able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of fifty. And let them judge the people at all times. 
Then it will be that every great matter that they bring to you, but every small matter they themselves you shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. Underline, they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure and all this people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he said. And Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, and rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. And so they judged all the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. And so the advice that he gave him, look, look at the advice that he gave him in verse 20. And it says, you shall teach them statutes and the laws and show them the way in which they must walk and work they must do. And, and so there, there is a biblical model that you can break down all the way through here. We found this. We introduced Brian um, Edgett on Sunday as a board member here. And we read a scripture out of 1 Timothy that lays out the qualifications for, for an elder or a deacon. And, and this is kind of the idea here. And it's, it's all the way through. That's Paul telling Timothy in the church that, that he pastored. We have the church in Acts, right? You guys remember the story. And it says that the, the women were disputing. And you had the, the, the Jews and the Hellenists. And they were at odds about who got what. And the distribution of the daily goods. And, 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 and God spoke to the the disciples and they said that we um, we can't deal with these daily disputes all day that we can't remove ourselves from the word of God to wait on tables and to raise up for yourself um, able men and then with these qualifications and one of the ones Jethro gave who hate bribes and different things and let them make these decisions same thing in the book of acts and so they raised up men and the apostles and the disciples they had a, a, a different calling and they would take the big matters and deal with them but but they they weren't to take themselves from the, the studying and the teaching and, and seeking god to to deal with these these smaller um matters in in the house of god and so here moses father-in-law just gives him the same the same focus and within the church it's it is the idea it's the it's the way that the structure should work we should be raising up the next generation we should be training men in the word of god in statues and what god wants and what god's heart is and what jesus desires and let people serve and then and then those people start discipling people and changing and, and growing in that so that you know and everybody has a call and a responsibility and, and it doesn't make sense for one person to deal with all the affairs, small to great, because the people will be frustrated, the Moses will be frustrated, the system won't work. And so in order to have a healthy system, basically what the, the simple advice that Jethro gives is that you have to raise people up to and train them properly, though, to, to do those things that, that we can all do. And people have different and better gifts than you. And don't be afraid to put people in positions where they're more gifted than you are and, and use people in those areas. And um, it's a church model all the way through, you know. And we, we have to be raising up the next generation. We have to be raising people up, training them up, letting them do it. I think it was one of the famous preachers of the... was Moody or maybe it was Moody who said... Um, I'd rather I'd rather uh, I'd rather train ten men than do the work of ten men. I'd rather raise up ten men than than do the work of ten men. And and that's just very wise, you know. Rather than do the work of ten men, let's raise up ten guys that can do those things themselves and and set them free and and let them do those things. The last verse and Moses left, let his father-in-law depart, and he went in his way to his own land. And so. Um, we have Moses' wife and kids now that are with him, that will go through the journey with him. And uh, Amen? Let's stand. Some good lessons for tonight in, in Exodus 6, 17 and 18. And the Exodus about the flesh and that the flesh will, will destroy us and the lust after the flesh will... Um, you know, and the Amalekites, the solution that Jesus gave for dealing with the flesh and the solution that God gives is the Amalekites as a type of the flesh is that you have to annihilate them. You have to 100% eradicate them. You can't um, reform the flesh. You can't cut back on sin and cut back on the flesh. You have to cut it out and eradicate it from your life. Jesus said that if your right eye causes you to sin, do what? 
pluck it out. And if your right arm causes you to sin, cut it off. And those are some, that's, you know, pretty radical. And Jesus is speaking in terms that are radical on purpose to give you the idea that it has to be dealt with radically in your lives. And, and, and we can't reform sin. We can't reform the flesh. We can't reform those areas. We have to cut them out. We have to get rid of them. We have to eradicate them, cut them off. So if you have something in your life that way, get rid of it. Seek the Lord and ask God and, and, and lay it at His feet and don't take it up again. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. And Father, we thank you that, that you do bring water. And, and Lord, as Moses struck the rock the first time, and, and Lord, be, that you sent, and, and even as you said in the New Testament, that you are that rock and that's a picture of you. And anybody who, who lives and believes in you, out of his life will flow torrents of living water. And, that, and that's the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and our lives today and overflowing and, and, and blessing us. And so, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would work now in our hearts and lives. We pray, Jesus, that if we have any weights and sins which so easily ensnare us, that, God, we would, we would turn from those things. And that we would walk in you, Lord, and that we would grow. And, Jesus, well, the reality is if we're just all honest with ourselves, our lives probably don't flow with torrents of living water all the time. But, and, and nor do we feel like we, we live that abundant life that you promised. And yet, Lord, we know that that's your will. That's your goal for our lives. And, Lord, that's your goal that, that we, we be used by you. And so, Father, we thank you and pray, Lord, that you would work and that we would draw more, that we would draw closer to you every day, Jesus, and experience that abundant life and those torrents of living water that would flow from our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.